Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. I'm Mark Feinsand, MLB.com's executive reporter. We have a little bit of a special episode this week. We're going to veer away from our normal interview uh, process and sit down with our good buddy, also my colleague from MLB.com, Jim Duquette, a former big league general manager and our own personal general manager. Jimmy, how you doing, buddy? What's going on, Mark? Looking forward to talking about our little uh, our topic today. It's right up the uh, a former general manager's alley. It's been a hot topic here uh, recently, too, over the last couple of years. And that topic, of course, is the Super 2. And I know some people are out there going, what's a Super 2? So let's explain what a Super 2 is, and then we'll get into the nuts and bolts of it. Um, a Super 2 is this. Players typically have to accrue three years of Major League Service time, which means being on the 25-man roster – one year is 172 days on that roster to become eligible for arbitration. Uh, so if you're short of three years, theoretically, you would not be eligible. The Super 2 is a specific designation that allows a select group of players that have between two and three years of service time to become arbitration eligible. Now, how do they figure this out? Players have to rank in the top 22% of players with two to three years of service time. So essentially, if you have at least 130 days of service time, uh, in addition to your two years, that's roughly the number uh, that gets you that Super 2 cutoff date. So uh, here's an example. Dexter Fowler completed the 2011 season with two years and 168 days of big league service time. So he wasn't, he was four days shy of three years, but because he was one of the leaders in service time among those players with two to three years in the majors, he qualified as a Super 2 and was eligible for arbitration after that third season, even though he hadn't played three full years. Now, why does this matter? You're still not eligible for free agency until you have six full years. So Fowler ended up being four days shy of eligible for free agency after his sixth season, but he got a fourth year of arbitration. And we all know that before you're arbitration eligible, the teams don't have to pay you any more than the minimum. Once you're arbitration eligible, your salary and your earnings go up considerably. So, um, you know, this is basically a rule designed to keep teams from, you know, keeping a guy in the minors for two weeks and then not having to pay him, uh, you know, until his fourth year or fifth year. Uh, teams do get an extra year of control if they do this, but at least they they pay the players more. Jimmy, does this system make sense for players? Well, I, you know, it's funny because uh, from the front office side, we always try to take advantage of this to some degree. And you can see, you know, teams would. Uh, you, you drew up some you know, good examples. Obviously, followers won. If you go back uh, not too long ago, Gregory Polanco was 2014. Uh, you know, in, in June, and Carlos Correa, uh, June 8th. They, their call-ups are centered around trying to control the costs. Uh, generally, you see small market clubs, mid-market clubs do it. But, you know, it's a large market club. And I, I was well aware of it with the Mets, with Jose Reyes. When we called him up in 03, he was called up in June, middle of June. Uh, for, you know, specifically, we didn't think he was ready. But second of all, we were like, well, you know what, we can save a few dollars on the arbitration side if he's not eligible. Um, uh, and so, you know, I think that the, the, the players in the union built this in smartly. So because the top the top players, the guys who have, you know, two plus service time guys, the guys that are on that right on that verge, as you mentioned with Fowler, you know, they should be compensated like a three plus arbitration eligible guy, if, if they have that amount of service time, um, you know, it, it's at least some kind of measure of, uh, of uh, fairness uh, because they're not going to become a free agent, you know, soon enough at the, at the back end of it. So I, you know, I always felt like it's not ideal from the player side players in, in teams really shouldn't look 
at, you know, if they're trying to win and with today's talented players, you should call them up when they're ready. Um, and if you're going to wait uh, to call them up, you know, wait for the first couple of weeks. So you have a full, another full year of control of them. But that's not, Nick, you know, I always felt nickeling and dying, diming to some degree if you brought them up in June, trying to save a little extra, a couple million dollars on the arbitration side. You mentioned Carlos Correa. To me, he's the perfect example of a guy who was held out just long enough not to be at, at Super 2. He debuted in June on June 8th, 2015. He won the Rookie of the Year that year. He played 99 games and won the Rookie of the Year award. Yet 2015, 16, 17, 18, he will have played essentially four seasons in the big leagues before he is eligible for arbitration. If he had been called up a week or two earlier, he would have been arbitration eligible this past season, this past offseason, and he would have obviously made a lot more money. So, uh, you know, guys like him, Francisco Lindor falls into the same exact category. He debuted six days after Correa. So, um, you know, you look at guys like that. You mentioned Gregory Polanco, Will Myers, it happened to in 2013. Um, whereas George Springer, Correa's teammate, the Astros called him up April 16th of 2014. And he's a guy who will have four years of arbitration eligibility before he becomes a free agent. So, uh, you know, we see teams do a lot of, sort of roster manipulation in terms of uh, getting that extra year of control. I think the most famous recent example, of course, is Chris Bryant. Uh, you know, the Cubs said they needed him to, uh, you know, get a little more work in and, and improve a little bit, uh, even though he had led the minors in home runs in 2014 and had more home runs than anybody else in the majors in 2015, yet he didn't debut that season until April 17th, and that's going to gain the Cubs a full extra year of control uh, for the former Rookie of the Year and MVP. Now, he will get that fourth year of arbitration eligibility, so he will make some money in that year, but probably not as much money as he would if he had been a free agent. Right, right, exactly. And I think that's the thing. Like, with Chris Bryant, you know, if, if he, if he uh, you know, is brought up when he was uh, really ready, you know, they use reasons to keep him down for those couple two, for those two weeks. But he was really ready to start the season that year. If they brought him up, now you're talking about a whole different value monetarily for what he could become or what he could ask for as he gets closer to his free agency and he actually becomes a free agent as we know. I mean those those you know the Bryant's uh, a player of Bryant's caliber, you know at his age, he could be looking at 150 to 200 or more million dollars on a free agent market. You're delaying that by an extra year. It makes sense from the organization side of things to do it that way. And it's unfortunate because it, you have some really good players of, you know, sitting there in the minor leagues and, and, you know, not being called up because of that. And so I've always been, I've, from the front office side, I've tried to take advantage of it because those are the rules, but I always felt looking at it, trying to look at it objectively. It's not best for the team, nor is it best for the game. In fact, uh, when I went through this with Nick Marcakis, 2006, it was, he was clearly the best, our, one of our best outfielders, and I had a hard time going into the clubhouse and telling our telling our, our players, "Hey, listen, he doesn't deserve to be on the team because he did." And and hey, we're gonna we're gonna leave him in the minor leagues for two weeks just because we're gonna play around with the rules. We needed to win, you know, right away, right out of the gate. So I forego, I I, I didn't um, didn't take the option and send him to the minor leagues. Wait two weeks, brought him up. I let him start the season on a major league club. You know, and, and, you know, it could have cost the organization down the road. In fact, we signed him to a, a, an extension after I left the, the Orioles. But those those two weeks of having him in the minor leagues, for me, it was not a real good option because he was going to be a key component of our ball club. That's got to be a tough thing for a GM to to sort of, you know, wrestle with in his own mind is 
what's better for my club right now? Do we have a better chance of winning more games these first two weeks of the season? Uh, or in some cases, first two months of the season um, with this guy. But on the flip side, if we keep him on the opening day roster, that's a whole other year. It's a whole year earlier that he's going to be eligible for free agency. I mean, you look at Bryce Harper, right? Bryce Harper, from the minute he was drafted, everybody knew this guy had superstar potential all over him. He didn't debut until April 28th in 2012. Now, if the Nationals had put him on the opening day roster that year, uh, he might not be a national right now because he would have been a free agent this past winter instead of this coming winter. So, you know, teams have to weigh the pros and cons of short term versus long term, I think. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that's, you know, the, from the national side of things, as difficult as it was to keep him in the minor leagues at that time. Well, look at the benefit of that now. They're in their window of opportunity to win and win a championship, and they still have the services of Bryce Harper for one more year. Oh, by the way, Bryce, you know, delayed his free agency by a year, but he's still 25 years old. He's going to make plenty of money. So that's always been the argument on the on the major league side. You don't have to you don't have to go out and uh, you know and and uh, you know these guys will eventually get to free agency, and you're you know going through the arbitration process. You're being compared to your peers. Uh, you know, based on service time and statistics. So if you put up the numbers, you're going to get paid uh, commensurate to your service time class. It's just there's a huge gap financially for for a guy like Harper. And listen, to Harper's credit, he hasn't complained about it. Bryant Bryant's agent is the one who took up the uh, took up the uh, mantra in in for Bryant that Scott Boris and you know filed a grievance with against the Cubs, which is uh, I don't think it's been resolved. But this this rule for the most part isn't going to change. The most we saw it was up until about four years ago. It was the Super Two, uh, uh, let's say, cutoff was two years. It was the top seventeen percent of the of the service time class. It just went to twenty two percent, as you mentioned. Within the last three or four years, it was it was negotiated in the in the new CBA, and that cutoff was it, it's it's a moving target. So trying to predict that number is hard. Like you 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 had some good notes in here. Some of the years it was two years and one hundred thirty three days. 2013 it was two years in 122 days so if you know one year the, the the 2012 season was two years and 140 days like if you're if you're trying to pinpoint it to the exact day you can be wrong many times and still end up paying them arbitration money so yeah it's kind of tricky if you're trying to guess uh you know and that's been especially if you're trying to win it becomes kind of crazy to to figure out when that day will be whether he's eligible or not I mean, last year we saw we saw a few of the top prospects in the game get delayed, uh, you know, until later in the season. And you'd have to assume that that the Super Two situation played into it to some extent. Uh, you know, Yohan Mankata had accrued 31 days of service time in 2016. The White Sox didn't bring him up until July 19th last season, so that's about a month later than we've seen a lot of these other Super Two guys. And those 31 days, you'd have to think factored into that. Ahmed Rosario, August 1st last year. Ozzy Albies. August 1st last year, Rafael Devers, July 25th last year. So, you know, teams, I think the moving target situation that you mentioned probably plays into some of these teams waiting a little longer than usual uh, to do some of these things. Um, you know, I think when you look at what we've seen this season, you know, Cleaver yes. Torres, April 22nd, he's going to be a super two. As long as he stays in the big leagues, you have to assume that if he doesn't spend any more time in the minor leagues, he will be a super two, uh, you know, in two year, two and a half years. Ronald Acuna, I mean, coming out of spring training, was there any doubt in anybody's mind that he was probably, if not the best player on the Braves, their second best player behind Freddie Freeman, yet he didn't debut until April 25th this year. That's more about 
getting that extra year of, of free agent, you know, delaying the free agency for an extra year. Because again, if he stays in the big leagues the whole time, that's another guy who's going to be a super two. Right. And, and that's exactly right. And I think Acuna is a, is a great example. Here, the Atlanta Braves at the time are not expecting to win. Uh, their window to win is is just starting at least in their mind is next year. Even though they're in the hunt, you know this year we know uh, you know right around first place, at, off to a great start. But but their window of opportunity is 2019 and beyond. So you know okay, well why not why not bring up Acuna at the beginning of the season? Well you want hit you want to have the that, that extra year. I was at least uh, happy to see that Alex Anthopoulos couldn't keep Acuna down any longer than that and try to wait until June or, or June 15th to try to play around with the, his super two eligibility. Like you said, if he, if he stays up and there's no reason to think he won't for the rest of this season, all right, he's going to make some money in his third, third year, not foot, not third full year, but his third year of major league service time. And you know what? You'll gladly play the way I looked at it. Mark in the front office was if they earn the money, then you gladly would pay it, you know, and that's the thing with Acuna and these other guys that are that are, you know you hold on you hold back a couple of weeks. I expect him, Glaber Torres, guys like that that have come up this year. I expect them to produce at a high level. So it'll it'll be uh, it, certainly they'll be uh, uh, making the money that they should, and you'll glad and the teams will gladly pay it because you know that's they they've certainly gotten the benefit of them helping out at the major league level. So when you look at some other top prospects in the game right now and the fact that they are not playing with their big league teams, you mentioned the Yankees, obviously a contender. The Braves may be a surprise contender right now. Uh, but then you look at a team like the White Sox, Eloy Jimenez is killing it at AAA or AA rather. Uh, you know, AA to, to the big leagues, not always a, an obvious promotion, um, but the White Sox could certainly uh, use a little jolt. Maybe he's a guy that that gets held out until August uh, you know, with the with the idea of, of of keeping his arbitration down for an extra year, Nick Senzel in, in Cincinnati. Uh, you know, there are guys out there who I think, just like we saw uh, Moncada, Rosario, all these, uh, you know, waiting until late July or August uh, last year. Um, you'd have to think that's around the time some of these teams, uh, maybe late June in some of these cases, when the Super Two deadline appears safe. Uh, you know, that, that's when we'll see some of these other top prospects maybe get their promotions. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think, you know, in, in we have the ability to go back a year. You brought up the names, uh, Ahmad Rosario with the Mets. So Rosario could have helped the team at some point earlier last year. They needed huge improvement defensively. But as the team continued to struggle uh, out of the gate and they had a bunch of health issues, it became more – uh, financially responsible for the front office to wait until August 1st to bring him up. Did they feel like he was ready before that? Yeah, he could have helped them. Certainly he could have helped them on the defensive side. Probably would have been similar offensively to what we've seen this year. But they waited until August 1st. Now, guess what? When He won't even most likely not be eligible for Super, stu, uh, super 2 status. Same thing with Ozzie Elbies. You know, last year Atlanta was, was uh, struggling as well. So you generally see you know, teams are struggling – you know, sometimes you know, in fairness to the to the ball clubs, they're not all doing it. Rafael Devers wasn't ready, and and he became ready, you know, later in the season, which is a lot of times when you see you know talented players that come on the scene, a full year year at Double A AA or Triple A or both, um, you know, 
he brought he got called up i think the end of july last year july 25th yeah so so you're like okay well he's he's going to be ready at some point now can we fit him into our major league team he ended up being a big part of the red sox run down the stretch but it really wasn't developmentally ready for him so so there's a fine line you, you know teams would hide around it sometimes most, a lot of times it's obvious i think in the devers case uh, it was more that he wasn't quite ready the early part of the season, and then they brought him up. How much do you think ownership typically plays into this? Is there is there do you think a lot of teams have sort of orders from above to delay some of these uh, promotions for for these arbitration and free agency reasons, or do you think the GMs are are you know for the most part you know very savvy when it comes to this stuff, and and they're kind of calling the shots? Yeah, I think I think in that sense, Mark, it's a good question. I think the owners are more aware uh, the, these days of the rules and, and, and educate themselves. MLB does a good job of educating them. Uh, but but the GM, it's also their responsibility to make them aware of it. And I think it becomes a combination of both. When you're sitting down and you're trying to improve your team and where they are you know, in the standings, invariably those names are coming up on a regular basis. So so Torres and Acuna, those names are coming up with the, with their particular teams. And basically, you know, if you're Brian Cashman, you're saying, listen, well, I have a huge need for second base. There was a reason why he started in the minor leagues. He missed a lot of last year because of Tommy John surgery. But at some point, he talks to Hal Steinberg. He says, we need him up here if things get off to a slow start in our infield, which they did, they did. And plus the guy's so talented, we got to call him up with all the other younger guys. And you know what, we'll hit him down the bottom of the lineup. And you kind of have those conversations with ownership group more times than not, the owners are not saying no to any of that stuff, but it does, I think, make it incumbent on the front office to, to make their owner aware of it and educate them because here's the thing, their fans are asking they they see they see who these top prospects are. They're wondering why they're not up there. Uh, so you're ba- you're better off, you know, having that discussion ahead of time. I was going to say you, you mentioned the fans. I mean, obviously, fans are more educated about this stuff now than they were even ten years ago. But how much do you think the advent of social media plays into this? Because all of a sudden, you've get you're getting you know pressure from 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 fan bases and and sort of this whole. Twitter movement in some cases on, you know, well, why isn't Acuna up? We all saw, uh, you know, him play spring training and we all saw how great he was. And and we've seen enough articles and, and you know, Mark Bowman wrote about him 7,000 times this spring and for good reason. And yet he's not up. I think, you know, 15, 20 years ago, maybe even 10 years ago, I don't think fans know as much about it. And all of a sudden now, uh, you know, I think just the education level of fans is so advanced compared to where it was mainly because the information is out there how much do you think that puts pressure on an organization and a front office to uh you know kind of have to explain themselves or or when it comes to some of these moves so i i think you hit on something that that you know it's changed the way front offices have to operate you know in the past when you didn't have social media uh that was you know available to everyone and and you didn't have the access to the top prospects and you didn't have these prospect ratings like what MLB pipeline does, which is amazing that, you know, how much, how often they, they update the, the prospects. And then, you know, they also do it on the amateur front too, but on the prospect sides, uh, you know, each team has their top 10, top 20 players in some cases, top 30. And if your fan base, who's dying for baseball information, the access now to watch them and to read about them is higher than it ever has been. So 
So all of a sudden, they can voice their opinion to ownership and to the ball club. And so as a, you know, I used to ignore a lot of that when I was in the front office. A lot of GMs did. They didn't have to address it as much. Um, but now you can't because you know there's, there's plenty of these movements that that um, you know take on a cause of a particular player, and then all of a sudden you you know makes uh, you know the the. And I also think to this point too, today's players they're more prepared to come and and help at the major league level, pr- uh, produce at the major league level. You know, a couple of years, five, probably ten, even ten years ago. You, they weren't as good developmentally to help at the major league, at the major leagues uh, side of things. So I think there's a combination of it, but I, I think your point is a good one, Mark. You can't you can't hide as a front office exec anymore behind uh, you know the the uh, the uh, social. You can't hide behind social media because they're going to expose who's doing well, who's not, and basically in some ways force your hand or at least make ownership aware of what's going on. So you're basically saying this is all Jonathan Mayo and Jim Callis's fault. I think I would like to blame you for them. <laughs> you did it first, though. I didn't do it. <laughs> no, I, I think the the fact that uh, that fans know so much about the prospects is really, I think, the biggest difference in terms of the uh, the pressure that gets put on on teams to to promote some of these guys. I mean, think about this: 2005, the Yankees needed a shakeup in early May. Right. And they made a move to bring up Robinson Cano and Chinming Wong. And nobody was talking about, oh, they did that to delay their free agency or anything else. It was, you know, whoa, oh, I guess these are two of their top prospects. And, uh, you know, it wasn't – they weren't household names before they got to the big leagues and started producing. Right. By the time the Yankees brought up Glaber Torres, uh, you know, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, whatever it was – you know, there wasn't a, a Yankee fan alive who didn't know who Gleyber Torres was. I mean, my 12-year-old was excited when Torres got promoted. And this is a guy who's never seen him play, never couldn't have picked him out of a lineup, but knew his name and knew that this is a guy who's supposed to be an impact player. And I think that's the biggest difference of why, uh, you know, why this is a, a bigger deal now than it was before. Well, and I'll ask you this, too, because, you know, let's take the Yankees because you were covering them too, uh, during the period where they brought up uh, Severino and they brought up Judge. Uh, you know, and you were here, I'm, I'm sure you were hearing from fans, hey, what's the status? When are they going to be called up? Like, they, they're asking you, you're covering the club. Well, of course, if you're going to educate yourself if you haven't seen them already, and it's a natural question to ask the general manager, all right, what's the going on? Why, you know, what? You know, ask the manager, hey, you think about – using Severino as a starting uh, pitcher. Do you think about using him out of the bullpen? Like it just becomes a natural question that, that should get asked, especially when you see, you know, guys struggling at the major league level. So it's, it's, you know, the, the fans can, can find ways to, to, uh, to get their information out there. A lot of times they'll ask the, the reporters covering the team. And I think the bigger problem with that and speaking from personal experience is, you know, when you're covering a big league team, uh, or in a fan situation when you're watching a big league team, chances are you're not watching those minor league games. So I can look at, at MILB.com and look at the stats and see how a guy's doing down there, but you don't know what that means. As Severino having great success at AAA, uh, but his changeup is is terrible. Uh, he's just overpowering minor league hitters with his fastball, and if they bring him up to the major leagues right now, they may feel, you know what, he's not ready to get big league hitters out. And I'm looking at his triple A stats going, yeah, but this guy's got a 2.1 ERA and, and he's striking out, you know, more than a batter at inning. What do you mean? He's not ready, but you know, the teams have the scouts there. The teams have their player development, people watching them and really analyzing them where we don't, you know, fans and media 
and I'm not, and I'm putting myself in, and the rest of the the you know beat writers out there who fall in this category into that same area of you know I don't watch Scranton play on a regular basis. I don't watch Trenton play on a regular basis when I'm covering the Yankees because I'm covering the New York Yankees. Um, so it's one thing to be able to say, well, he's killing it in AAA. He should be up here. Uh, but the guys, you know, I, I, this was always my argument. If Brian Cashman thought that a player at AAA was going to make his big league roster better and give him a chance to win more games at the big league level, he would be there because, and and you know this from having been in that chair, uh, your job is to get wins at the big league level. And very few GMs, I mean, Cashman may be one of the few exceptions right now. Very few GMs have the luxury of saying, I don't, it doesn't matter if we win games right now because my job is secure and I know this is a better long-term strategy for my team. These guys, you know, GMs are based on results. And if you don't win games, they're going to eventually replace you and bring in somebody else who can help this team win games. So um, I just don't believe that GMs leave guys down there for an extended period of time, uh, you know, solely for that reason. Now, a small market team or a team that's, uh, like you said, not a contender. Yes, I think there is a strategy in terms of bringing guys up. But uh, for the most part, I just think the idea of this guy's going to help my team, but I'm not going to do it because I'm trying to save a few bucks. Most cases, I don't think that's the way it works. Right, I, it, right exactly. I, it just It's financially, with all the money that is generated with teams and the revenues, the revenue streams that are available to them, it doesn't make sense if this player is talented enough He's not making, you know, he's making the minimum salary with the minimum salary, what, 520 right in that range. There's no reason why now I not to bring him up. I think, you know, your, your point, I was, I was going to bring up one uh, other example, uh, Gregory Polanco with the Pirates, right? Back, we talked about him earlier, 2014. I remember talking to Neil Huntington and being a little critical of the Pirates and how they were handling Polanco. It looked like his numbers were, were indicating that he was ready at the minor league level. They were waiting and waiting and, and um, you know, and they kept saying, you know what, there's some things that he needs to develop. He was only 22 or going to play that year at 22 years old. And they brought him up in, in, in June of that year. And, and we're like, okay, well, you know, you, you missed two months of being able to win with him in the lineup and everything else. Well, guess what? He got off to a slow start that year. He ended up with a 650 OPS uh, in 2014, well below what I thought he would produce and I kind of go back and think about it, Mark, and say, you know, you know it, it, to your point earlier, to give the benefit of the doubt to the organization, they knew that he wasn't quite ready. I saw him misplay a couple balls defensively. They kept pointing to the fact that they wanted him to refine his uh, outfield play. Guess what? It didn't look like he was quite ready. In fact, when they brought him up in June, he still made some mistakes that you would have thought uh, he would have uh, you know, had been a more of a finished product at the minor league level. So, that's the fine line is, is you can only, I think, ask in fairness those questions uh, to some degree. You have to defer to guys who are doing it on an everyday basis. They're the experts, the farm directors, the minor league directors, they're, they're, uh, they're in, in their evaluation skills and the organizations. That's what they get paid to do. And you mentioned it. If, if you're leaving a guy that can help your major league team in the minor leagues, well, at the end of the day, you, you you lose the division title by a game or two. That could be the difference. So they're not, in a lot of cases, they're not going to keep them down there just for the for the Super Two side of things. They they certainly are for the control factor, you know, for to control you know an, another year at the major league level. I mean, look look no further than Aaron Judge, right? He's the apple of everybody's eye right now. When the Yankees brought him up at the beginning of August in 2016, 
you know, he hits the home run in his first at bat, and it's a big celebration. Oh, why haven't they brought this guy up sooner? And then he struggles a right. lot for the next month. And, you know, while Gary Sanchez was hitting, you know, 20 home runs over those final two months, Aaron Judge really, really struggled at the plate. And all of a sudden it looked like, hmm, maybe this guy's not quite ready. You know, Severino was the opposite. Severino came up in 2015 and had two terrific months. And it was like, well, this guy's now a guaranteed star. Well, remember, 2016, he was awful as a starting pitcher. Right. And, uh, you know, they ended up sending him down to the minors and, and brought him back. He was a reliever. Um, and, you know, there were people who were actually calling at the end of 2016, well, this guy should be a reliever going forward. And then, of course, he finishes third in the Cy Young last year. So, you know, just because a guy's having great success at the minors doesn't mean it's going to immediately translate to the big leagues. And if it does, it doesn't mean it's going to immediately translate and then stay that way in the big yeah. leagues. So, uh, you know, I think you have to give some of the, these teams the benefit of the doubt that they know what they're doing in certain situations, like the Chris Bryan situation, uh, Bryce Harper, you know that, you know, the, these guys are being delayed for two or three weeks in April because the teams want the exterior control. And that's the way the system is. And I really can't fault a team uh, for taking advantage of that. These are the rules that are laid out. And, uh, you know, as long as they follow those rules, there's nothing that can be done about it. But I think fewer teams that are contenders are holding guys out for super two purposes, uh, you know, than they are than they are for the free agency purposes. Right, right. I think you're right. And I think it's something that kind of bears watching moving forward, you know, and then for, you know, in future CBAs, those type of, te- you know, as, as teams continue to, you know, do a good job of signing and getting players ready to help their major league clubs sooner and sooner. The, you know, the players association is going to try to fight to see if they can get that rule altered somehow. I don't know if there is a, a, you know, a, a, a way around it. You could try to create certain rules, you know, for the guy, for those ex- extra year uh, players. Um, I've fought it out a lot. Trying to find an ideal change to it is really hard to do. It just doesn't, you're never going to get full buy-in from the major league team and you know, whatever route it, they decide to go, it just seems like it's, it's a difficult one. It seems like one of those rules that you're just going to have to try to figure out a way to work around it and accept, you know, and and uh, and, and see what ends up happening. I think the, the Acunas of the world certainly didn't hurt the Braves' chances that that much anyway that he was down there for two weeks. So I don't see this rule changing anytime soon. Well, and you know what? Look, if Acuna ends up being the type of player that, you know, he's certainly projected to be, um, then you have to look at it and think that if he's that kind of player and he has the extra year of, of arbitration eligibility uh, for being a super two, which it would seem he will be, you know, Bryce Harper made $21 million this year. Uh, you know, that fourth year of arbitration, you're going to get paid maybe not quite as much as you would as a free agent. And maybe, you know, you're not going to be able to cash in on that big nine figure deal that early, but you're also going to be able to feed your family. So uh, I don't think, you know, you, you, you're, you will be compensated commensurate to your uh, performance in that fourth year of arbitration. You will make a serious amount of money um, if you have played, you know, to the potential that, that you have. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. I think that's, you know, and, and, you know, every rule isn't perfect, you know, free agency isn't perfect. That's when most of the teams, that's when most of the teams complain about it to agents and, and players. Well, they have too much leverage. Well, that's part of the game. The, the, this is the one area where front offices seem to have a little bit more leverage. And, and I think it's one of those kind of necessary evils that we're going to see uh, continue, at least for the foreseeable future. Jim, was there, what, when you were uh, 
an executive, whether it was with the Mets, the Orioles, what was the hardest decision you had to make when it came to a, a player in this Super 2 area? I think Jose Reyes, going back to what you know, I brought up earlier, the first, you know, the early part of the show, uh, you know, he it was clear that he could help. This was 2003. Our team was off to a slow start, and I hadn't become general manager yet. Uh, I didn't become general manager until the beginning of June, mid June. But I could see I was also overseeing the minor leagues at the time, and I could see Jose Reyes was going to help us, and and it was very very soon that he could help. Maybe it wasn't, you know, the second week of April, but by the end of April. And we specifically held him down because the team continued to struggle. And and when I took over uh, the GM spot in the middle of June, my first conversation I had with ownership, with the Wilpon family, was, listen, for my first move, uh, we need Jose Reyes and his team. We need to start this, the, the, the cycle. We need to start the development process. And it was a very easy yes. Go go ahead and do it. Don't even worry about it. It was a much easier uh, answer that I got as the GM than it was as the assistant GM. So you know they were certainly in tune with the rules even back then, but it was such a tough call. You know, trying keeping him down there uh, for that period of time when I just knew. I mean, in my heart, I knew this guy was going to be an impactful player at some point soon. And, you know, we waited the extra month. He had a, he had an up and down kind of year because he dealt, dealt with some injuries in an early part of his career, but he ended up being a really impactful player for the Mets. All right. Well, that's going to wrap up our look at the super two, Jim Duquette. Thank you very much for taking some time to, uh, to chat with me about this whole, uh, this whole crazy thing that nobody really understands, but uh, people get really angry they understand it. a little better. <laughs> we gave some good examples of it anyway. Absolutely. And Jim, we're going to do this again. This is not going to be a one-off. Well, I'm not about the Super 2, but uh, in a few weeks, we're going to do a special MLB draft episode. And, uh, and then as we get closer to the trade deadline, we're going to do a trade deadline episode as well. So always nice to be able to lean on your expertise uh, to bring the fans some, some inside scoop of how executives look at some of these events. I appreciate it, Mark, and enjoyed it. And I love your podcast, by the way. I tell you, I've gotten a lot of good feedback around the game from your podcast on on the depth and breadth of uh, of the of the uh, executives that you've been interviewing. So, look forward to your next one. I appreciate that, Jimmy. We will be back next week with another episode as I sit down with new Reds general manager Nick Crawl for a conversation that actually took place prior to his promotion. Crawl was named GM on May tenth promoted from his position as vice president and assistant GM. We hit on a number of topics during the episode as he takes us through his journey from athletics bat boy all the way to becoming the GM for a big league team. You can search for executive access on Apple podcasts, art 19 or wherever else you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those and be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about executive access. Many thanks to the great Jim Duquette for joining me this week. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinzand.